Uh, it is really good to be here. Uh, I walked in today and just felt what I, I shared with our team who prayed earlier, just an overwhelming sense of gratitude. Um, I'm just so grateful. It is a fresh thing to walk into, not only actual fresh paint, uh, but just what feels like the beginning of a very exciting and meaningful new season. And uh, I'm so thankful to be a part of it with you. And uh, it's a new season in this space. It's definitely a new season for me. So many of you know, like my wife is about two or three weeks away from birthing our daughter, which I'm very excited about. Um, and uh, as much as I love you, I'm way more excited about that than anything in here, uh, just in case you were curious. But um, I am very, very grateful uh, just for the process. And it's been fun to watch because uh, let me just say something every single person that's had a kid in the room was already going to resonate with. I, I learned things these last eight and a half months I never knew I needed to know. <laughs> like, wow, I have watched more birth vlogs on YouTube than you could even imagine. My algorithm is totally messed up now. used to be all running, now it's all babies. So it's funny because uh, there's also, I mean, so many apps and just pieces of information you can get about babies. And you know this, right? People, millions, if not billions of dollars on just the baby industry. And one of those was I never, I've learned certain fruits I didn't know existed because that is the current size of our daughter as we've been progressing these last 37 weeks. And it's funny because one of those was the canary melon. Anyone ever actually gone to a store and bought a canary melon? Okay, that's exactly what I thought. None of you. None of you have done that. It's a totally obscure melon, but it exists. Just for kind of scale, you see the lady picking them here. Uh, it's really interesting because I just didn't know I needed to know that. And uh, there's other things I've learned about pregnancy too. I mean, I've learned that getting in the front seat of a car when you're pregnant is a lot harder than when you're not, Okay. <laughs> All the moms in the room are like, yeah, you feel my pain. It's like a, a job to get in there. Uh, the second thing is I, I'd always heard this, this phrase like pregnancy fog or brain fog, but I thought that was for stupid people. <laughs> I thought that's what happened if you're dumb and you get pregnant, uh, which I clearly am wrong because my wife is one of the smartest human beings I've ever met, uh, straight 4.0s in any degree you possibly could want. And she has pregnancy fog sometimes. It's funny because even this last week, I, we were both leaving the house around the same time. I pulled out like five minutes before her. I'm on my way to, the, to here, and uh, she calls me, and she said, hey, I don't know where my house key is. Can you, uh, do you have it in your car? I said, no, I don't have it. And so finally, I, I end up driving back home and locking the house up. She said, thank you, and she drives off. Uh, and we find out later it was in her pocket. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's not a knock on Lindsay. It's just pregnancy is a real a job. It's like a thing. It's like a brand new world. Uh, but even just like the short-term memory, and I, I dug into this, like the whole brain fog thing is legit because your body as a woman is processing so many different things and literally developing a brand new human life that it kind of just starts to lose some of those short-term memory things and things that your, your mind definitely regards as like less important than taking care of this child. And it's funny because uh, memory is one of those really interesting things about humanity uh, that the rest of our species doesn't necessarily have, like the rest of the animal kingdom doesn't necessarily possess. And it's funny because um, as you think about like short-term memory, long-term memory, some of you expressed to me, like as you get older, you just start to lose some of, the th some of those things. And what's really interesting to me is one of the areas where so many, I've journeyed with some of you, and I've journeyed in my own family with this, Things like Alzheimer's and dementia are not just painful because they're physically changing the person, but because they're losing their memory. And there's something almost traumatic as a human about losing memories, losing important dates and events and significant milestones in people's life. 
And what I think is interesting is I've just reflected as becoming a dad soon and, and having some, some things in our life of our church that have just caused me to ask the question, what are people going to remember about me? L- like when my kid is maybe sitting at my funeral down the road, what, what's the thing that she'll say? I, I thought about this when we were, right when I first got like the new keys to this building. And I thought, I thought about the fact that when eventually someday Center Church will close its doors or transition into something else or will birth something new, and eventually this season will end at some point. And I think about what will people say about Center Church? What will people remember about us? What's the legacy we will leave behind? And really that question, what will people remember about me, is one of the most important human questions. Whether or not you're asking it, maybe you feel too young or too old maybe to even think about it right now. You're just like, I don't know, I'm trying to make it through tomorrow. Uh, But that question, what will people remember about about me, is actually one of the most important spiritual questions as well. See, all throughout the scriptures, this idea and concept of legacy, what you leave behind when when you leave, is one of the things that even Jesus talked about with disciples It's what the prophets walked through early on. Even the beginning story, one of the things that God gave humanity for whatever reason was the ability to to have memory and to be remembered by something. And I want to take you to a passage that is incredibly obscure. I guarantee this is none of your life verse. I guarantee it. 1 Kings 19 is where we're going. So if you have a Bible or even just a device you can track along with us, I'm just going to read verse 15 through 21. Uh, and I want you to catch what's happening here. So this is, you can literally skin, skim backwards in this chapter and find that right on the heels of what we're about to read, Elijah has conquered kind of the opposing prophets at Mount Carmel. Some of you do know that story. It's like where God is kind of challenging the prophets of Baal, and they're doing everything possible to try to overcome the God of Israel, everything possible to overcome Elijah's God. And he's saying, I'm just telling you, my God is the real deal. And, and besides, in between miracles and Elijah's challenges, this incredible moment at Mount Carmel crystallizes that God is, in fact, the only God. He's the sovereign Lord. He's the ruler of creation. And then on the heels of that, this is what we read in 1 Kings 19, verse 15. The Lord says to him, after this incredible moment, Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king of Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king of Israel, and anoint Elisha. Anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from a bunch of names I'm not sure how to pronounce. Uh, son of Shaphat from Abel Mahola to succeed you as a prophet. I want to skip to verse 19 here. And this is what happens. So Elijah does what God says. He goes from there, goes back the way he came, and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elisha, Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Now, I say this is obscure because I'm willing to bet all of my life savings that's never happened to you. I've just never seen it, I'm, I know a lot of you pretty well. I've never heard you tell that life story as being like a, a critical moment in your future or in your destiny or your purpose. But this is what happens. And I want to look backwards at some of the things that are taking place here. Because if I'm Elijah, Mount Carmel for me is like the peak of my Christian career. It's like I'm a professional prophet. God has called me to sacrifice my life and to roam the country of Israel 
and to tell people what God is saying. And then I have this incredible battle between me and the prophets of Baal. I win. If I have a legacy, I want it to be that one. Like, I want it to be Mount Carmel. And, and instead of that, he follows God's leading. He goes back the way that he came from, and he meets this young guy, probably likely in his 20s or 30s, plowing the fields, which is not an unusual circumstance in ancient times, and especially in ancient Israel. This was agriculture was the way you got by. It was your uh, local economy. It was everything you really needed to survive. You, you raised your family on the farm, and they lived on the farm. Some of you grew up on a farm. You, you get the rhythms of agriculture. But what's fascinating about this story that First Kings points out is that Elisha had 12 teams of oxen. Again, none of you are phased because you're like, what is that supposed to mean? I don't, I don't know what that means. And I didn't know what it meant either. But the more you dig into it, most people in that day would have had one, one team of oxen. They had just you, Bessie and Billy, you guys are it. Like, I'm going to hook you up and every single season. We're doing this rhythm over and over. And when you die, I'm getting a new Bessie and Billy. And we're going to load it up. We're going to do it all over again. But it says Elisha was so wealthy and affluent, came from a rich family. He had 12. I mean, think about the efficiency. Some of you are in that industry. Your entire career is how do I make things quicker and faster and better? That's what happened. You had 12 teams. You were obviously clearly wealthy. And instead of Elijah acknowledging that and saying, wow, what a great legacy. You're so wealthy. You're so rich. What Elijah does is throw a three-year-old jacket over Elisha. Why does he do that? Not only would that smell bad, try wearing a t-shirt for three years straight. I mean, just some of your kids probably have tried that, right? You're, they're, they're en route to that. But it's interesting because what Elijah is doing in this moment is passing his prophetic mantle to Elisha. He's saying, my calling, my purpose and destiny, I'm not going to be concerned about my purpose and destiny anymore. What I'm going to do is invest my life in seeing you thrive, in seeing you become the prophet I believe God is calling you to be, for me to pass over literally my physical mantle, but also my spiritual mantle to you. That's incredibly significant. It's a legacy moment in these guys. Here's what runs through my head when I read the scripture, though. Uh, this would be equivalent to me driving one of my dream cars, a 2021 Toyota 4Runner. It's equivalent to me having that and driving this thing around, and then someone named Elijah coming along and saying, hey, I know that that's incredible, but instead of that, how about I give you this? <laughs> 91 Ford Taurus 2.5 liter. Like, that thing makes... Yeah, it just makes the other one look like a brand new, like just incredible spaceship compared to the technology that would be in this thing. But it's funny because some of you drove that, number one, probably. The second thing that's funny, and it was made when I was born, but the third thing is this is kind of what's happening here. This is Elijah saying, I know you've got like all the nicest new things. I know that you feel like you've got purpose, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you something old, but something that really is going to shape your entire life. I'm going to give you this cloak, this mantle, this representation of the prophetic calling. He's calling Elisha out of a life of security and safety and even stability on some level into a life of sacrifice, self-denial, risky faith. I mean, this is the kind of commitment of a prophet. And Elijah catches something in this moment that so many of us go to our grave never, ever catching. When you think about the idea of legacy, your legacy will not be a what. Your legacy will be a who. 
Your legacy won't be a what. It's not going to be the amount of things you collected. It's not going to be the amount of money that you had. It's not going to be about the achievements on your wall. It's not even going to be about your body or your image or how much you worked out of the gym. It's going to be about the who, the who's that are behind you, the people, the family, the kids. And if you live your life for the what's, the money, the status, image, uh, achievements, careers, different jobs, vacations, better yard, you're, you're going to end up being a shell of who God created you to be. It's going to be parts of what you need to live, and there's nothing wrong with having a nice lawn. In fact, yesterday I got to, to mow our dandelion field, also known as my lawn, <laughs> yesterday. And I'm still cleaning out dust from all of my like, nose and ears uh, from that incredible experience. But you can spend all your life, some people are more committed to their lawn than they are their spiritual life. Why is that? What is it about? Because we get so caught up in the what, so caught up in what we can see that often we forget that our legacy is not a what, it will be a who. It'll be someone, it'll be a family we leave behind. See, if, if you know the gospel story, even Jesus' closest disciples mess us up. One of my favorite passages is in Mark 10, where in Mark, this whole discussion happens between Jesus. He's got his closest disciples. He's like, hey, guys, come around the table. I'm going to tell you what's about to happen in my life. This is like Mark 10, and there's only six chapters left. Like, we're getting close to the end. And in this, he says, I'm going to be arrested and crucified and eventually buried, and then I'm going to rise again. And in that act, I'm going to bring the kingdom of God to earth, and you're going to be a part of this. And then he talks about the way the world works. He talks about the powers of the world and how so much of our world get, gets caught up in what you can buy, what you can own, what you can achieve, how you can leverage people under you once you get to a certain level. And he says, that's not the way we're going to do this. And on the heels of that powerful conversation, James and John, the sons of thunder, the coolest motorcycle club in the history of the gospel, like, right? That's why I want to have a jacket with a patch, son of thunder, right? Uh, and so you have that. What's funny to me is that on the heels of Jesus saying all of this, they come close to him and they say, Jesus, Jesus, uh, I think all of that stuff about crucifixion and resurrection is great, but we're asking if when we get to the kingdom of God, can we sit on your right and your left? <laughs> can, can we be in positions of power? Can we have an incredible what? Can we have the spot, the place like the status, that's all we really want, Jesus. Will you give us that when we get into the kingdom of heaven? And I can just imagine Jesus, full of grace and truth, right? Just like, do you, what are you saying? Like, why are you, did you not just hear all of the things I just said to you? Like, oh, we're just talking about the kingdom of God. And so he goes again through this list of what it looks like to be powerful and to serve people in the kingdom of God versus what the world says, like the great what's that we pursue. And then he says this incredible phrase to them. He says, in the kingdom of God, not so with you. That may be how the world operates. We may be caught up in the great what's, the pursuits, the careers, even the legacies we think are most important. But friends, not so with you. Not so with you. As followers of Jesus, Center Church, not so with you. We are not going to be overly consumed and concerned about the things that we can achieve or own or the great what's. Those will not be your legacy. Your legacy will be a who, a family, a person, a student, an employee. It's the people that you invest in and sacrifice for and care for. That's who you will be remembered by. 
I'm going to talk just as a pastor for a moment because it's funny, like so many of you, I know your jobs, I know what you do, and I radically don't understand it still. <laughs> and you may feel that way about me. I had someone say very early on in ministry, hey, John, like I'm just curious, like I'm, I'm getting, I want to get into ministry, like I think God's called me to that. What do you do besides Sunday? Like just had no idea. He was like, do you work beyond Sunday? Like how do you get in your 40 hours just working one day? Like how do you figure that out? And uh, I was young and immature, so I said something young and immature probably back. Uh, but it's funny because I, you may not totally understand what I do, but one of the things we had to decide on last fall was we had some staffing gaps, and then we kind of went through the COVID-19 stay-at-home order season, and on the other heels of that, we said we really want to make sure that as we reopen this fall that we are committed to, to center kids and center students and we're raising up worship leaders, and we're doing all those things. And so we kind of looked around. I mean, I talked to people who are on the full spectrum of ministry experience and age and location and all of these kind of things, and just kept feeling God's sense and draw back to college students, <laughs> back to people. I had a couple of wise mentors say, are you sure you want to do that? Like, are you sure you want to hire people who have never done what you're asking them to do in like a formal way? And I said, I don't know. Like, let's, I guess I will find out. And uh, so this whole process, discernment, interviews, personnel team meetings, I mean, through the ringer, we hire really, really slow here because we want to make sure we're making the right decisions. So it was a really long process. But I felt God say to me, this is your Elijah, Elisha moment. Are you going to be the lid for people? Are you going to be the one to say, no, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, you can't do this. Like, you got to wait till more professional, experienced people like John Gorvette can come along and do it, right? Seven years in vocational ministry, like, wow, like, talk about all the experience. And so I kind of had to reckon with that. I was like, do I, do I want to really live this out? Am I really going to model this? Am I going to let my legacy not be about buildings or budgets or attendance numbers or whatever? Or am I going to make it about people? And that was a harder decision for me than it probably should have been. Because some of you already know this, but the average age of pastors in America right now is 55, which is not a knock on 55-year-olds. Some of you are in that age bracket. I'm not like hating on you. Some of you just gave me bug eyes. You're like, I'm leaving right now, taking my tithe with me. Like, uh, What's funny, though, is, I shouldn't say it was funny, what's sobering, actually, about that is that that is not a great sign of health for the American church. What that means is we are not raising up people quick enough to, to meet the great need that we're experiencing in our country. And none of us have lived through the last year and say, our country's just fine. Like, we, they're good. Like, those 55-year-olds are crushing it. We're good. We have enough churches. We don't need to do anymore. Like, I haven't heard any of you say that because there is always a need to pass on faith, to pass on your legacy to people coming behind you. It's not like a luxury that some churches get to have. It's like a necessity if you want to survive and really reach people with the gospel. In fact, that was one of the driving factors for this space. The space wasn't the biggest we looked at, but this space was a, a very critical location and area for us to be able to make a dent in the community. And one of the biggest kind of demographics who said this will help us reach was families with young kids and with high school, middle school students. Like being a couple miles away from all of those schools, having touch points and, and families who are invested and uh, a place that they can come during the week instead of just a couple hours on a Sunday morning, that was a driving factor. And some of you shared that as you gave to the Gideon campaign. You're like, this is for our families that aren't here yet. 
And that's, that's a, making your legacy about a who, not a what. That's living out your own Elijah, Elisha moment. Do you know what the second leading cause of death is in 10 to 24-year-olds right now? It's suicide. And you know why that's so, it hits me. Not only because I've lived through that, I've got siblings who've lived through that season, I've got friends, and you've got students and kids who are in that season. To me, that is just a clear example that if we don't make our legacy about who's and invest in the people coming behind, there'll be no faith to pass on. There'll be no legacy to inherit. There'll be nothing to step into. It makes what we're doing here even that much more important because there are students and kids outside of these four walls that don't know Jesus, that don't have parents who love and support them, that don't have people that are speaking vision and destiny and purpose into their lives, unless you do it. Unless you and I say, we're going to be four people, four generations. If we really believe the who matters, we, we begin to adjust our priorities in our lives and even in our church's life. We begin to say it's not okay that there are families in our community who think the end goal of their parent journey is to get their kid into the best lacrosse team. Have I stepped on any toes yet? Just curious. <laughs> like, that's, that should not be the end goal for our families. That is so low on the priority list when spiritual futures and destinies are at stake. We should not spend more resource and time and energy on will our kid become the next basketball star and don't disciple them, don't challenge them, don't invite them to come to church or youth group and just say like, I guess someone else will probably do it because no one else will do it. This, this is our call as a church. And, and Danny said that this is what it looks like to be for people. I remember early in, in middle school and high school, there was two, there's two names. When I think about this whole conversation that come to mind, uh, legacy people, I think about the names John Allen and Jeff Ackert, two people that some of you know, and some of them have spoke here. I think about those two guys, and I think about I was a really nerdy, annoying, obnoxious high school student, and I was interacting in both these areas. Like I went to youth group with one, and then one was my lead pastor, and I started playing music. And both of them challenged me in different ways, like, hey, you should, you should use this for God. You should, like, do something with this. Don't just, like, play guitar in your room. You should, like, play on a stage. I was like, ah, uh, I'm full of pride. That sounds great. <laughs> like, I would love to be on a stage, actually. <laughs> I think that will get me more girls, like, and maybe some money and some fame. Like, yes, I will do that. And eventually God checked that out of me, but that was my initial motivation. And they obviously saw something bigger than just like getting notoriety or playing on a stage. What they saw was a future in ministry, and they would say that. They would speak that. They would share that in conversations and over lunches. And to be honest, I don't think I'd be serving God if these men didn't decide, you know what, my legacy is going to be about some who's, not a what, not how big can I achieve, how much can I achieve, how big can our church be, how big can our youth group be or whatever. I'm going to decide to invest in people and to see something in them, and to speak that, and to be for people in the next generation. See, those guys both still to this day live with that eternal legacy in mind. Their ministries are fueled by that, and I'm, I'm a benefit, I'm a benefactor even now of that. They were more focused on the who's instead of what's. Because if they said, what's the best way you can invest in your ministry and to grow your church? They wouldn't have probably said, or they, now they would say, but maybe in the, day, in the moment they wouldn't have said, well, I should go like, have coffee with a 16-year-old. But that's exactly what they did. 
They invested in people with the legacy in mind. They had their own Elijah, Elisha moment. Let me say what you're all thinking. Okay, so now all we're going to do is focus on young people. <laughs> all we're going to do is focus on the next generation. You're saying if I'm 26, I got to spend my life raising up 16-year-olds. If I'm 66, I got to spend my life raising up 30-year-olds. And I'm going to say exactly what I think the gospel would say. Yes, yes, that's exactly what I'm asking you to do. That's exactly what Jesus does. He takes a bunch of teenagers who no one else saw value. No one called them to follow them. Jesus comes along, and there's something about it. He, he saw something in people. And in God's kingdom, we don't fit into the, the perfect, neat categories that often our world says, oh, if you're old, you go here and you hang out with those people, and then you look at other people who say, those kids are so dumb. <laughs> like, tick, I don't even know what TikTok is. Like, what are they doing on that thing? Like, what? What are they spending their lives and their time on? And then you've got other people in the next generation, even people in my age category that sometimes say, there's just nothing to learn from older people. They don't get it. They're antiquated. They don't understand. Not relevant with the times. Like even the way they do church and faith and think about it is so outdated. I just, there's nothing to learn. We need to bring up some new people. But in God's kingdom, not so with you. Not so with us. We, we believe that as, as followers of Jesus, you can learn from anyone. That, that any of us can challenge any other one of us to, to ask the legacy question, to say, I'm not going to just live for what. I'm not going to let the world say, well, you can't do that with young people. Or you can't do that with old people. And that's one of the blessings of this church. You look around every age in your family, just representative of what I think the kingdom of God when it comes to age and generation should look like. But our job is not finished until our lives became, become consumed with the who's instead of what's. I want us to read a verse that to me, I stumbled across in, this, in my week of study here, and it stopped me in my tracks. I don't think I've ever read this verse before. Maybe I've read the Bible in a year, but I skimmed this part, I'm guessing, because I had not ever caught it. Uh, but it's telling the story of the history of Israel, and this sobering verse sticks out. I want us to actually read it together. It's Judges 2.10. It'll be on the screen. Let's read this out loud. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Not so with you. Not so with us. We are not going to relegate that responsibility to our, even our schools, great, awesome schools. We're not going to say they're the ones. We're not going to say it's the, it's the Christian professionals, it's the Johns of the world. That we're going to say, well, you fix them, figure it out. We are all needing to recognize that we need to have an Elijah, Elisha moment, that our legacy can become about a who. I don't want that to be written in Center's history books. Well, we had an incredible time and a great season, but then a generation came up who didn't know what God had done, what he was capable of, and that it just vanishes from our midst. If we fail at this, Center will die when we die. And I don't want that for you. I don't want that for myself. But if we succeed, if we embrace, say, Jesus, I'll take you at your word. Not so with me. I'm going to make my legacy about people behind me. I'm going to invest in the generations among us. What I'm going to do is see, you're going to look back over the history. Center's legacy will be a trail of people, of students, of, of families, of pastors, of future missionaries, of future doctors, of future business owners, of future entrepreneurs who at the very core of them believe that Jesus is king and, and change communities because they're then 
sent out. That's the opportunity to pass the mantle. Your legacy will not be a what? Maybe you think it is. It's just not. Your legacy, friends, will be a who? Two cautions and three things I want to give you as we wrap this up. Number, number one, what I want you to know is that this doesn't happen through osmosis. I grew up believing that it did. I, I think even as a parent now, I'm probably going to think that. Like, if I can just get that little girl into center kids, she will be raised up to be the next Beth Moore, the next, like, awesome powerhouse female preacher in the kingdom of God. But let me just give you a, a, a word that you're already probably aware of. You just do some quick math. The amount of hours spent in, in center kids or even with our youth group or whatever, it's so small compared to the amount of time that you have with your kids and your, parents and your kids' friends. And just the investment level is totally different. To, to put all of our eggs in that basket would be a terrible stock market piece of advice. So I wouldn't give that to you even as a pastor. But it doesn't happen by osmosis. You can't just hope if I bring them in here, it'll kind of rub off on them, and then their problems back at home will kind of evaporate. You're laughing because I'm right. Like You're laughing because you know that. And the second thing, the second word of caution, this doesn't just happen through Christian professionals. Some of us have grown up with the lie that the most important and effective people are the people that are on this stage. Let me just say that's not true. That's never been true. If you look at the gospel stories, there were people who were responsible for point leadership, for casting the vision, but they were not the only ones doing the mission. They were, they were concerned to make sure that other people knew. This doesn't just happen through osmosis or by Christian professionals or, or pastors. This happens when we all decide we're going to be four people in the next generation. Three sentences I want to give you. Uh, they're actually a question, so you can tell my grammar's A1. <laughs> like, three things I just want to show you, and you may be saying, how do I take a next step with this? It seems like, okay, I have kids, what do I do? Or I have someone in my life who's younger, what do I do with that? Three things that you can say that will kickstart this conversation in your life. And, and I, you see this even in the Gospels. I don't know if Jesus said, can I buy you lunch? But he certainly sat with them and had breakfast and Passover meals. There's something about meals for Jesus that were teaching and investment opportunities for his disciples. So number one, you can, you can text us this week. You can email, Facebook message. You can literally go up to someone and say this. Can I buy you lunch this week? Can I buy you lunch? Because there's something not only generous about buying someone lunch, and you know if you've been around Center for one hour, I'm obsessed with lunch. <laughs> I love lunch. I wake up waiting for lunch. Like that, that's kind of my just default mode of operation. But there is something about a meal that changes the conversation. There's something when you invite someone over or say, do you want to go to Chipotle or Chick-fil-A, right? If you see, you want to bring them there, that's where God moves the most in our community is those two places. But if you ask the question, can I buy you lunch? It invites conversation, invites you, and gives you an opportunity that's not so awkward to ask about someone's spiritual health, to ask, how are you doing, comma, really? How can I pray for you? Tell me about your story. How did you meet Jesus? Have you met Jesus yet? What's hard? What's broken? What are you praying for? And to join them in that conversation, just pick someone. Who's, who's a couple steps behind me generationally? Who, who can I invest in? Who can I say, I'm going to reach out? The second is really easy. And some of us never heard this growing up, and that's a shame. I'm sorry. So I'm going to stand across from you or sit across from you and say, you know what? I, I believe in you. <clears throat> I believe in you. There's people in my life who have said that, and it has literally, I can't tell you 
that has shaped me, who just took the time honestly and vulnerably to say, I believe in you. I know you can do this. You've got this. No one in our world is saying that to people in the next generation. Have you caught that? No, no one's saying with truth and love and the power of the Holy Spirit, I believe in you. You can do this. I don't know what you're going to do, but I believe you can do it. And the third is really simple, very similar. I, I remember someone when I was 17 years old saying, you're going to be an incredible worship leader. That's what they said. And again, when I was 17 years old, I had all of the pride in the world and did not take that for what they really meant it to be. But someone said it. You're going to be an incredible worship leader. And you know what? Even when I was wandering in faith, even when I was doubting, even when I was unclear on what my future is going to be like, I remembered that. I remembered when they said that. You're going to be an incredible worship leader. Call it destiny, call it purpose. That was the very first thing I did after college. It's got a job leading worship, and it led me into this role. What is it for you? What is it for the person you're thinking of, the student or the family or the adult or the employee that comes to mind? You're going to be an incredible blank, and just fill it in. Don't lie, but, but think about it. Ask God, just would you inspire me? Give me vision. What, what, what could this person really do to make a dent in the kingdom of God, even in their marketplace role? Don't have to go and be a pastor. What can they do right now? Friends, your legacy will be a what? It will not be a what. It will always be a who, a person, a family. And Jesus understood this. So what I want to do is just pray. I want to pray. I want to boldly ask God that he would keep impressing a name. You maybe have a name of someone who's lost in your world right now. We talked about that the last two weekends. But maybe today it's a name that someone who's younger, someone in the generation behind that you can pass your faith on to make sure they at least know what has God done for you. Maybe you don't know how to like get them a, into a Bible college or get them a degree or help them be a preacher or whatever, but you can at least share, here's what God has done in my life. I just want to make sure you know. I want to pass it on. So I hope that today you leave with a name. You leave with that legacy question in mind. So would you pray with me? Jesus, I thank you that you have always been for people. That your heart breaks for the kids and the students and the college students people in their 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s, the people that don't know you. And you've given us the responsibilities of church to not be content with who we have, but to always be pursuing the younger brothers who have run away, who don't know you. And so, God, I just pray that you'd make that real for us, that there'd be a name, there'd be something that changes on our calendar this week. There'd be something that changes on the drive home. Say, you know what, we've, we've got to do this. And with your Holy Spirit's help, God, I thank you that you are in the business of allowing us to actually make an impact on people, to change lives. But we need you in this. This is, if it becomes about us or becomes about our value or even just our identity, it's going to be worthless. But what we need, God, is a move of your Holy Spirit to sweep through not only our church, but our families and our homes, our car, our car rides home, our drop-offs at school, our pickups. We need you in this. So work is too important to try to do it alone. God, I thank you for what you're doing, how you're shaping us, how you are challenging us to be for people. And I pray that you'd give us each this week an Elijah moment. 
to pass on our faith, to pass on what you want to do to the next generation. We love you. We thank you for your love, for your pursuit of us, for your chasing after us. We pray you give us that mindset and attitude as we reach to people outside these doors in Jesus' name.